What would happen if the country you love, the country you've become an ambassador for, the country you believe will bring you and your family a better life, what would happen if that country rejected you? Not just rejected, but actively and aggressively and violently banished you. On Anzac Day in 2017, Yasmin Majid posted seven words onto a Facebook page. Lest we forget Manus, Nehru, Syria and Palestine. Seven words that, as far as I see it, remind us to remember that conflict involves two sides and that often the reverence surrounding the armed forces sometimes leads us to forget the disruption, destruction and dehumanising that happens to the civilian people who live in the countries where conflict is happening. Less than three months after writing those seven words, following a bloodthirsty campaign in the press and in the parliament, Yasmin left Australia for good and moved to London. In her new book, Talking About a Revolution, she writes not only about this experience, but also many other things, including life on a remote mining rig and a deep love of the summer nats. She's a powerful, funny, fascinating person, and I can't wait for you to hear this conversation. But first, podcasts are free to listen to, but they're not free to make. And there's a bunch of people that help me make this show each and every week, and I pay them because they're the best in the country at what they do. To help pay them, we play ads on this show. If you like an ad-free version of the show, I'll tell you about that later on. But until you get there, here's some commercials, and then we're back with Yasmin. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The opinion you have of Muslims, where does that come from? Does it come from research you yourself have done on like, you know, what actual Muslims do and don't think and spend their time doing and in a deep way and not just what it says on Reddit? Or is it like, oh, I've done a bit of social media Googling and I listened to the news and I, you know, my uncle once said this thing and therefore I now am fully informed on the whole 1400 years of Islamic theology and what Muslims are like. Of course not. And so where are you actually getting your information from? And I mean, again, in a time of loads of disinformation and misinformation, 
a little bit more challenging, but just slow your thinking down and ask, am I really sure about this? How do I double check? And how do I make sure that I'm just not parroting a dehumanizing perspective, but I'm actually giving people the kind of respect that I myself would want to be treated with? That was author, activist, and self-described recovering engineer, Yasmin Abdel-Majid. I'm Osha Ginsberg, and this is Better Than Yesterday. G'day, welcome. This is Better Than Yesterday. This is a podcast that is here to make your day today better than the one yesterday. I like things that do what they say on the box. Now, how do we do this? By having conversations with people from all over the world, from all walks of life, some of them being experts in their field, and through those conversations, hopefully, give you some new ideas, something that pops into your brain that goes, you know what, I might try something a little bit different, think about something a little bit different, relate to someone a little bit different. And you know what? Today ends up better. When you lie in bed at night and you go, you know what? Today was better, better than yesterday. And that's it. That's all I'm here to do. Since 2013, we've been here three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. There's hundreds of interviews, hundreds of episodes to dig into. And, and I really hope you do because um, I love making this show. And from the emails and the messages I get, you enjoy listening to it. So thank you so much for letting us be a part of, of your week. If you've never listened to the show before, my name is Osher Ginsberg. I'm a TV host. I'm a podcaster. I'm an author. I'm a dad. I'm a stepdad. I'm a, uh, a backyard DIY pulley gym hacker. I'm a sauna haver. I'm a massage getter. I'm a strange off-camera physio rehab exercise doer. Now, literally, I'm on, the, I'm on the side of stage shooting this production at the moment, and there's a massive sound stage, and there's hundreds of people, and there's fireworks, and there's all kinds of shit and on the side of the stage. I'm, I'm there, like, with my leg jammed up against a speaker, holding something else, doing some sort of wild isometric thing that releases a, a, a ligament <laughs> that my physio showed me. Um, and I'm grateful to be here. i got to tell you, man, I just, I just got a phone call from Audrey, my wife, and Wolf's in the background, and I've, I've been... Uh, we're not in the same state at the moment. We're in different parts of the country. And I haven't been around Wolf for about, I don't know, six days, seven days. And holy moly, man, I think he might have had access to some of those Bradley Cooper limitless pills because the young boys, like he's gone from, you know, iPad to MacBook Pro. He's he's just, there's like different inflections in his tone of voice. There's like different ways of putting things. Like there's there's logic showing up in his in his speech that I fucking missed. And it's happened in the last 106 hours or something. Far out, man. And uh, it's amazing. <laughs> but look, I'm, I'm grateful to be here. And I'm really grateful you're here for this episode. because This is a really important episode. I've been trying to get Yasmin on the show for years. Understandably, she wasn't able to do it for a while. Um, but I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful that we managed to have this conversation because it's really freaking good. You can always uh, find me. I'm super easy to get in touch with. So send Osher email at gmail.com. That's it. That's where you find me. I'm also on Instagram. And I love to see where you are listening to the show. It's called a podsy. Take a photo of what you're looking at right now. Whip out your phone. Take 
take a photo of what you're looking at. Just DM it to me. I just love to see it. It's nice to see where you listen. People listen from all over the place doing all kinds of things. There is an ad-free version of this show. If you want to support the show, Patreon. I'll tell you about that later on. But the best way you can support the show is to like, to subscribe, to rate, to share. Just share the episode with somebody and that's that's really good. Big thanks to everyone who's been listening to Dad Pod, which is the um, the dadding, the fathering, the parenting podcast that I do with Charlie Clawson. comes out every Thursday. We've got a new season and it's uh, freaking good. Um, we had a great chat with um, Katrina Savage last week uh, all about food refusal and um, when kid, you know, kids got to eat. Kids got to eat. What happens when they don't want to eat? Well, we get talked through it and it was actually really good. I, I thoroughly recommend you get into it. Yeah, just find Dad Pod wherever you found this podcast. But let me tell you about my guest today. Yasmin Abdelmajid is a brilliant Australian. She's born in Khartoum in Sudan and her family fled an oppressive military regime and in 1992 came to make a home in Brisbane. She gets into how that happened and it's, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful story. Growing up in an academic family, Yasmin was a vocal and brilliant student from early on. While still a teenager, her activism earned her many accolades and praise, rightly deserved praise. Young Australian Muslim of the Year, Young Queenslander of the Year. Her 2014 TED Talk, What Does My Headscarf Mean to You?, launched her into a higher orbit and, and brilliantly addresses unconscious bias, which, like it or not, we all have within us. It's a thoroughly recommended. It's well worth a watch. So Yasmin started to get a lot of attention, so much so that the Australian Foreign Affairs Minister at the time, Julie Bishop, appointed her to the Council for Australian Arab Relations. And late in 2016, the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade actually sent Yasmin to several Middle Eastern countries as an ambassador for Australia, including Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Jordan, Egypt, and Sudan to talk about Australia, to, hey, here I am. I'm an educated woman I'm in this country. It's amazing. She was, you know, there to promote Australia, basically, as an ambassador for our country. And she proudly did it because she loves our country. So what we have, right, we have a proud Australian, a woman who's been shaped by the city of Brisbane, where she grew up, where I grew up, a brilliant engineer, a woman who's literally worked at the coalface of the booming mining sector for years, often the only woman on a remote mining rig. You, you cannot get a more kind of coalition grassroots Aussie jobs for Aussie workers kind of job like that. She was doing that job, right? The pictures at the time, brilliant, her in a hard hat and all the high vis way out in the bush desert. You've got this incredible woman who's suddenly and rightfully one of the faces of millennial Australia speaking candidly, brilliantly, and powerfully about diversity, inclusion, humanity, and agency with grace, with humor, and with this ability to communicate, which is just captivating. A woman who is having a higher and higher profile on the Australian media landscape, starting to work in television, starting to host TV shows of her own. Someone who's never afraid to speak her mind, someone who's never afraid to engage and even address misconceptions about who she was, what people might think of her and the culture that they felt she represented. And on Anzac Day 2015, April 25th, which if you're not from Australia, that's the day that as Australians we commemorate the Defence Forces. There's similar days in many other countries. On that day, Yasmin posted seven words on her Facebook page, lest we forget Manus, Nehru, Syria, Palestine. 
Manus and Nauru being the islands where Australia's offshore detention policy is, in my opinion, quite harshly enforced and, in my view, at a colossally disproportionate humanitarian, moral and fiscal cost to us as a country. Syria and Palestine being countries where human beings doing human things have their lives destroyed by heavily armed, often ideological conflict. Now, from where I see it, those seven simple words were there to try to remind us that while we remember the men and women who work so hard and sacrifice so much to give us the country we can live in safely, my own mother being one of them, my mum worked for the ADF for 15 years. I spent a lot of time on base in Brisbane. Like, essentially, I knew what it was to be on a military base, like all the time, go there after school all the time. I feel it's important to remember and to be grateful for and to recognise that eventually international diplomacy needs to have a credible backup. And the brave and committed men and women of our Defence Force do just that. I know, without a shadow of a doubt, I would not have the life I have, my family would not have the life that we have were it not for these people. And it's incredibly important to recognise that the life that we have is given to us by the, these incredible men and women who sacrifice so much so we can live our lives never having to know what they've seen or what they've been through. But I also, I don't think it's impossible to also hold in our minds the idea that people on the other side of the conflicts around the world have humanity as well and also deserve our empathy. I feel it's okay to hold both ideas in your head at the same time. I can be, at the same time, be grateful for the proud and brilliant and professional Australian military and also be compassionate to the people who are displaced and have had their lives uprooted by the conflicts where our military operate. I'm the child of two people who were displaced by conflict. I feel it's possible to have both ideas in my head at the same time. But apparently, on that day, the 25th of April 2017, and the day after, the 26th, that was not the case. Yasmin became the laser-focused target of a colossal and very public conservative assault, fueled by a bloodthirsty press who saw, in my opinion, an opportunity to make some money, getting ratings, getting clicks, and selling papers by once again vilifying a minority in our community. And even though she tried, multiple times, no apology would satiate this beast. No amount of sorry would make it better. She tried and she tried again, but it didn't work. Less than three months later, three months of daily death threats on social media, abusive telephone calls which forced her to change her phone number, forced her to move house, forced her to delete entire social media presences. Understandably, it became too much. In her words, it was a concerted effort to ruin my life and nobody stopped them. Not the government, not advocacy groups, no one. I was out there alone. And in July 2017, this brilliant, powerful, incredible leader in our community feared for her life so much that she permanently relocated to London. In my opinion, that's a huge loss for our community, huge loss for our country. In her brand new book, Talking About a Revolution, Yasmin asks in a series of brilliant essays, how do we build a better world for all of us? She's such a good writer. She's such a good writer. 
I particularly love the essay she wrote about um, life on an oil rig, lockdown, loneliness, hobbies. She writes about hobbies in lockdown, cryptocurrency. And yes, she also talks about how her painful exit from Australia and, and so much more. It's a brilliant book and such a great view of our country through the eyes of a woman who is as much an Australian as anyone. But the country that she writes about looks quite different to the country that I grew up in. But I don't have to tell you, it's, it's important to, you know, try and see things from another person's place. Really important because the world that I experienced is very different to the world. The Brisbane I experienced is very different to the Brisbane she experienced. It's a great book. It's really, really good. And um, I'm, I'm so grateful we finally got a chance to connect. I've been trying to get her on the podcast since I started the show in 2013. We spoke remotely uh, from the Gold Coast to London over the, the magic of uh, mobile 5G dongles. And it's great. I really hope you enjoy this conversation with Yasmin Abdul-Majid. My brain is still, I'm still wiping the sleep off my eyes. So. Mate, 10 a.m. on the, like a no, pre, pre-toddler, pre-toddler 10 a.m. or pre-kids 10 a.m., that's early. I don't care who you are. It is, right? It is early. I don't care who you are. These people that are up like... With the sun or whatever, I'm like, you're lying. Well, what are you running away from? You're in London. You're in Londres. There's no fucking reason to get up at fuck o'clock in London. Like, what? What for? What for? So I can see the guy Correct. using Dettol to hose the piss off the sidewalk. No, I'm fine. I'm going to stay in my cozy bed. Exactly. You yeah, are 100 correct. It's, uh, I was. I was born there. All right. So I'll, 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 I can say shit about that no town. Way. Well, here's the thing, Yasmin. I. <laughs> I, too, am an immigrant, but I'm white, so no one ever cared. <laughs> yeah. I actually had no idea. There you go. There you go. Including me, apparently. Yeah. No way. Mm. I was four months old when we came to Australia. <laughs> At the time, my uh, maternal grandfather, who had brought the family uh, via Germany out of Lithuania when the Russians invaded Lithuania, they retreated with the, the German army. And um, I, I always, you know, kind of strikes me as like we all know how bad the Nazis were and everyone in Lithuania had seen mm. how bad the Nazis were. First fucking hand, that's where some real like awful, like before they figured out how to mechanise it, that's where some really horrible fucking mm. hand-to-hand, face-to-face Holocaust oh, shit. shit happened, right? And they went, oh, fucking the Russians are coming. Jesus, that's going to be way worse. Yeah. And so they left with mm-hmm. the fucking Nazis. <laughs> Because they were terrified, you know, anyway. Oh, my God. So they, they ended up in Germany for a couple of years and then they came to Australia. And what's wild, and I've seen the document, Yasmin, that my grandfather and my grandmother and my my mum and my auntie and uncle, the document that has their name on it when they landed in Adelaide, at the top of the mm. piece of paper it has the, the letters DP and that means displaced persons. And that's what we called people who are mm. coming to Australia fleeing war. Mm. Then we call them displaced persons. Mm. They're people and they have been displaced. And mm. that always struck me. You know, the first way you label something usually sticks in your head, right, the way our memories work because mm. it's novel. And, oh, they're a displaced person. Okay, fine. Versus, oh, they're an illegal. Well, fuck you. 
Same yeah. shit. Yeah, yeah, you're doing something wrong. One word. You're, you're clearly doing something wrong yeah. then, right? Yeah. yeah. And it's, anyway, so that grandfather was dying, and back then you just you just moved. Uh, mm. We were supposed to be here for a year, and they stayed. Anyway, that's the short version. That's just history. <laughs> How sort of connected are you to that history? Like, is it something that you've and you may have already done this? I'm not sure. Like, travelled back and seen places. Is it something I, you're curious I've about? I've not been back to Lithuania. I'm Lithuania was still part of the Soviet Union for a very long time, and my mm, my mum got mm, back mm, before she died. The, some countries did pretty well after the Soviet Union disbanded. Um, Lithuania, not really, mm. not really one of them. Estonia did okay, I think. Um, yeah. I haven't been back. I'd love to go. I've been to Prague. Uh, mm. My, my dad was also my dad was also a refugee at one point in his life. I stood on the street corner in Prague, yes, man, and I'm sure your father has the same tales to tell you, right? I stood on the same a street corner in Prague. <laughs> I was 24 when this happened. I know this man my entire life, right? I was like, why are you weird? Why do you like smoked food? Why mm. do you speak funny? What, why can't you just t- talk about rugby league like everyone else in Brisbane? Anyway, we're, yeah. still, we're still in the yeah. corner. And he said, so that's my, my house where I lived. This is his building. So, yeah, yeah, okay, right. Okay. So mm. the tank was coming up here and the tanks were coming up here and I had to get from here across that road to the train station because that's where I had to get the connection to get over the border to Austria. And so when the tank came, like I waited for a bus or something and I ran as the bus went and I tried to keep behind the bus. And I was like, oh, shit, you know. And he was my age when shit. he escaped. You know, he was, yeah. a, he was a doctor and everyone looked at him and were like, you got to go, you got you to gotta go. You know, yeah. Don't worry about us. You have to go. We know what happens. And mm. these are the people that I grew up with, you know. So kind of that mm. distrust of uh, authority figures was pretty big. <laughs> <laughs> pretty deep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lucky we moved to Bjelke, Peterson, Queensland. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, the best place to be for, you know, a deep trust in authority Jesus. and um, credibility. And I was fucked up. I mean, yeah, we moved just after good old Bjelke, Peterson. Yeah, you I came called, in 92. I, I, I you ca- you him, came yeah. right early yeah, after that. It. You were a kid. What part of the city, what part of Brisbane did you end up in? So my mum actually had a pen pal in Brisbane, really randomly, like from Sudan. I think he actually was, they were like somewhere in country Queensland. This like father had, you know, encouraged his son to put an ad in this like magazine for like a pen pal from around the world. Yeah, right. And, you know, my mum picked it up across the other side of the world. And so the kid was like a bit too young. The kid was like 10 years old and my mum was like, you know, like an old teenager or yeah. in her early 20s. So it was a bit weird for her to be pen palling a 10-year-old. But she ended up, you know, pen palling with the dad because he was like, who is this random person from yeah. Sudan that's like sending us letters? Wow. We stayed in touch with them. And then when they moved to Brisbane and my parents kind of decided it was time to get out of Sudan, they actually helped us, you know, they sent the paperwork over because obviously wow. back in the, you had to like apply with physical papers. So wow. somebody had to actually send you the sheath of papers wow. to fill in and post back to Australia. And so we moved in with them for the first couple of weeks in like Robertson, south side of Brisbane. That's amazing. I know yeah. exactly um, where that is. That is and incredible. Then Musgrave Road. Huh? Yeah, yeah, I know yeah. it. I know exactly Wild. where it is. And we lived with them and then we... You know exactly what yeah, I'm talking yeah. about, right? Yeah, yeah. So imagine 1992, yeah, yeah. this little family from Sudan rocks up. People down Musgrave Road are like, what on earth is going on? Like, who, and it's just a, like, I think I often, I've become that like person who's like, oh, you young people don't understand like what the, what Brisbane was like in the nineties. Like it just was, it was a different planet. Yeah, oh yeah. 
Yeah, that's so, so, so beautiful. Do you stay in touch with that family? Yeah, I mean, like, they came to my first book launch. Like, we went to weddings. Like, they they just kind of forever became family friends. They were also Jehovah's Witnesses. So um, they had loads of kids, understood that we were a family of faith. And that, I think, also kind of helped so that it wasn't, we weren't, like, so complete strangers. Mm. Um, or, like, our way of life wasn't, like, something that didn't make any sense at all. But I, I guess real, as, as well, yeah, you know, at, it the, was, um, at the time, if you were a JW in Brisbane, at the time... You would have been on the outer, without a doubt. I mean, still, it's, you know, viewed yeah. generally like. Yeah, I, I don't actually know what all of their relationships are with the faith anymore. Like, I think yeah. it was very much, I remember at the time, very much. But, yeah, as you say, it definitely sort of keeps you separate from the rest of mm. y- y- the people on the street, as it were. I mean, as you got, obviously, your parents probably would not have told you anything. I, I needed to get into my, my 20s probably after a few wines and maybe even way later into my 30s before mum ever really talked at all about what happened or what mm. it was like when they were well, when they knew they had to go. Did your parents mm. talk to you about what the years were like before you were born and then at what point with this beautiful little baby girl, they're looking down at you going, oh, man, we've got to go. Do they talk about that? Mm. Do you know, it's funny. I think you're right. I think I'm only just getting to the point where these conversations kind of move beyond the, you know, the one or two stories that they always use to talk about that time. So, like, my dad will always reference this time when he, it was my first birthday in Sudan, for example, and he went out to, you know, get me a birthday present. And all I wanted was this, like, little red dress and it cost him a month's salary. Mm. And he was, like, an assistant lecturer or whatever like he he, he had a, a, a pretty good academic position and he was sort of and for him he was like how am I going to be able to provide my daughter a life that you know that's the story that he told my whole life mm. and then I you know not that long ago I find out that like my mum had like picked a fight with a secret policeman and like almost got her hand chopped off oh and like that was also partly why we had to I was like how did you get, you really buried the lead, folks. You really buried the, like, how, how, how did you make it about my my dress yeah. rather than mum picking a fight with a secret policeman? I'm sure it's the same, you know, but, I'm sure, like, Audrey's, my wife, uh, her family came from Fiji after the, the first, I guess, mm. a really big coup in 87. And mm. if you know anything about that that particular coup, it was um, the reason everything's terrible is those guys. It wasn't. Like, mm. that happens a lot mm. and it just became unsafe. Yeah. And I'm sure in a way kind of not necessarily as much my parents but it sounds like as your parents is like it's probably a decade or two before they go, okay, I think we made it. I think we're safe. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, and it's also like it's that thing you realise when you start to like get a bit older, late 20s, early 30s, whatever, yeah. and you're like, oh, my parents were this age when they left. Yeah. My parents were like this age when they had a child that they had to take care of and they decided to pick up and move to the other side of the world and they had no idea when they were going to be back. They had no yeah. idea what kind of world was on the other side. And I I just, every time I really deep it, I'm like, rah, that is wild. Mm. And that is a type of, you know, my mom once said to me, she was like, I think your dad like used up all of his, all of his risk tolerance, you know, in the move. Like, mm. you know, my dad, I think in many ways, is a risk averse kind of a man. And I think, you know, I mean, this is, you know, armchair psychology or whatever, but if you've used all your ability to like take a massive risk on this thing that really is so difficult and so 
you know, traumatizing in some way, it does make sense that after that, you're like, you know what, let me just do the safe, easy, like the, let me just kind of try to handle my business quietly. So I don't have to ever do this again. I, I get that, Yasmin, but also your your dad is, you know, he's an electrical engineer. He's got a degree in IT. Like he's a numbers man. He's like a yes, no pathway kind of guy. You know, his, his brain works yeah. differently. You know engineers. <laughs> so he's like, no. Yeah, I mean, that, yeah. No. yeah. <laughs> There's no point even writing that line of code because <laughs> that's going to take us somewhere that I don't want to figure out how to get out of. You know, so to be fair, exactly. like, it takes yeah, a certain yeah, yeah. kind of brain to be drawn to that kind of the, the purity of, of engineering, which I, I, do, I do want to get into. But I guess where I was trying to go with this is I'm two of four brothers and there's something about the kids of immigrants. Mm. You just kind of, did you find that you picked up that, that work ethic? Because your parents didn't stop by all accounts. They just oh, hit, yeah. hit the ground running. There's no other way for us. There was no other option really. Mm. You know, that was the only way. And I mean, even, you know, now I'm living in London. Like, I notice, like, I have that just that same kind of mentality. You're like, you're in a new place. That doesn't matter. You are, you kind of have to depend on you. You can't depend mm. on the system to, like, catch you. Yeah. You have to just put your head down, work really hard, make your own luck. There's no family member that you can go and complain to, no yeah. auntie that's going to give you money, n- none of that. You have to kind of be super self-reliant. And I am grateful for that because I think that if it weren't for that, I wouldn't have the life that I have. I wouldn't have been able to kind of do the things I have. But it's also, it's not something you can really switch off. It's just the way you're kind of wired after that. Yeah, I guess, you know, I could. could, (laughs) Relatable, Asha? Is it relatable? Oh, look, no, well and and truly, you know, but I can only relate to it from like a white man who presents as, you know, just another. I spoke with a British accent until high school because I was taught English by two second language speakers. So I spoke the way way they spoke, right? That's so wild. But then when I got to high school, I was like, well, this is not going to be good if I keep pronouncing the letter E like this. Okay, then. (laughs) (laughs) Off we go. But, you know, the system that you described, even in our country of Australia, you know, a country I love so much. I became a citizen uh, in '99. Mm. The system you described is is built for, constructed by, policed by, designed to benefit, and is protected by straight white guys. And mm. if anyone else tries to get a, a taste of the benefit of being a part of that system, it's seen as extraordinary threat. I don't have to tell you that because you mm. experienced that. Mm. Uh, I've seen dear friends of mine experience it, uh, similar to what you have. And um, it's a bit shit that this that is the mm. case. But, you know, we, we can talk about how racist Brisbane is and Queensland is <laughs> till the cows come home, and I'm sure you'll experience that, and I'm mm-hmm. sorry that you did. And I'm, I'm here mm. working right now, and I had to tell one of our people at work, she's, you know, in her early 20s, why should she know? But I said, don't, don't forget, mm. in 1948, when the South Africans introduced apartheid, they based it on Queensland's racial separation laws. Like, it started mm-hmm. here, you know. <laughs> Yeah, oh, people yeah. forget that. People forget people, that yeah, shit. or they don't know it, right? No. And I think that's also something that's what, like, even here in the UK, I'm kind of astounded by Australia's like PR in the mm. same way that France has great PR, right? Like, it's a country that has this kind of branding that is, you know, Australia is sunshine and kangaroos and insects that kill you. Like, that's mm. generally what people think of Australia. And don't really 
have any sense of the history. I mean, I think when I was living in Paris last year, similarly, you know, it's the city of love, it's beautiful museums, blah, 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 croissants, pastries, whatever. People don't think, oh, they massacred Algerians in the street and threw them in the Seine. They don't think about the pretty grim colonial history. And so I'm just always like, how did some, you know, how is it some places still get away with it? Like, and you, you're the one who's the party pooper. If you ever bring it up, like, mm. <laughs> and it's like, oh yeah, so. I, I think that, and, I, and I, I've said this on this show before, I live, I've lived in America for 10 years. I came back in 2015 and mm. this country of Australia, it could be like the, the tippy, tippy top, mm. top of the mountain. And yet it's mm. come up a number of times with my guests that I speak about that there's this, oh, I don't eat animal products and um, that's, anyone can put whatever they mm. want in their mouth, that's fine, but I don't, I don't eat animal products. But mm. there is this kind of underlying shame in eating meat in knowing mm. that, you know, a chicken's head's come off mm. and, you know, a cow mm. who are really lovely creatures, cows are delightful mm. and pigs are really smart, really fucking clever, cleverer than <laughs> the smartest pet <laughs> dog died mm. in a really pretty uncomfortable and gruesome way, feeling a lot of pain mm. and fear so you could eat that burger and there's a bit of mm. shame that's kind of internalised. Like, and, and that's the only way I can mm. kind of parallel it to we kind of, we all kind of know that we have what we have because of genocide and massacre and pillaging yeah. of resources uh, at the exclusion of, of people who were here before we got here, but we don't kind of mm. want to. And I feel like if we get a chance to come to grips with that, we might have a chance to catapult ourselves forward. Yeah. We all kind of know it and some of us yeah. resist talking about it and therefore kind of get angry. Yeah. Why are you party pooping? Yeah. Why are you being the party pooper? Why bring that yeah. up? Because it's Marbo Day. Yeah, what did Marbo mean that do? guy? Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Just... And it's you're totally right. And and like it's like understandable, but that doesn't make it right. You know, like mm. it's like when you're told some truth about yourself as an individual and you're like, oh, I know that's true, but like fuck you for bringing that up. <laughs> like I'm not ready to deal with that. And yeah. it's like a real visceral response. And I mean I think that growing up in Brisbane, you mentioned like oh, growing up in Brisbane, it was racist or whatever. I genuinely didn't think that at the time. I genuinely was like, oh, yeah, they burnt Caribbean Moss down, but like whatever, no big deal. Like, oh, it's fine. I genuinely, I'm like one of the first pieces that I ever wrote publicly, it was published in the Brisbane Times and it's called Are We Racist or something along those lines. And it was like, Australians are like generally racist, but not specifically, you know, like they'll like Muhammad down the road, but they hate immigrants. Like it was something along those lines, you know, little 21 year old me couldn't, you know, face up to saying that the place that I called home could have this thing about it. Do you know? And I find that so yeah. interesting. Uh, yeah. It is, and but in Ursula Carlson, I worked with her. She doesn't work on the show anymore, but she's uh, she's from South Africa, and I I asked her about her country, of South Africa, mm. and she grew up there under apartheid. And I said, do you, mm. "How do you grapple with it?" She goes, "Your drunk dad who beats your mum. It's shit that he beats your mum, mm. but you still love him because he's your dad, don't you?" I'm like, "Oh mm. fuck yeah, okay." Mm, mm, and she was mm. trying to talk about how she still, you know, <laughs> you're like, "Oh." loves this country that did these things. Mm. Uh, I'll probably paraphrase it wrong, but it was it was kind of interesting. Well, I'm, mm. I'm glad that you didn't feel that kind of growing up and I'm, 
you know, I, I read about is uh, your book's delightful to read, and it's so nice hearing you tell oh, the story. Thank you. Hearing hearing you tell the story of you going to the Summonats when you were a young kid, and the fact that you <laughs> you had a Supra. Now I've got to say, a Toyota Supra, Yasmin. <laughs> I'm going to put this out there. I'm just going to say this right now. There is no better vehicle to do circle work in than an '86 right? to '88 Supra. I'm telling you, legendary, legendary, like. Twin servo situation. Honestly, when was it for cars? What was it? Because you grew up on the south side of Brisbane. When when did you go? Oh, mm-hmm. there's a story that goes with it, right? So the the story is, when I was about thirteen, we used to have this like tradition where you know every Friday night the family, me, my little brother, and my mum would go to like the local blockbuster. But it wasn't actually like a blockbuster; it was like a fake blockbuster. Yeah. yeah. And each of one for of those us of you picked- listening, this was actually like a bricks and mortar version of Netflix. Okay, and you would go and you would. <laughs> Borrow some yeah. sort of recorded media that if you didn't oh like it, you just God. fucking watched it because it cost you seven bucks. <laughs> <laughs> and you had to return it, otherwise they'd charge you late fees. You wouldn't steal a CD. <laughs> oh, my God, you wouldn't steal a CD. Because that's ads- Wow. Uh- <laughs> So we would go and my little, like we were, all of us would pick a particular film and my little brother would always pick these super weird films. But he, for whatever reason, picked this film called Catch That Kid. And Catch That Kid is like the Italian job for teenagers. It yeah. had Kirsten Stewart as a young girl. She must have been 12 or 13. It had mm. that guy from High School Musical, the black kid from High School Musical and one other guy. Anyway, and what happens in the film is they are robbing a bank and escaping on go-karts. You know, somebody's sick and they need money, so they're robbing a bank and they're escaping on go-karts. And I remember watching this film and seeing this kid on a go-kart driving super fast with, like, a ton of money. And I was just like, oh, my God, that I, I want to do that. That is the thing I want to do with my life. Like, not obviously not rob banks, but, like, drive really, really, really fast, preferably for a lot of money. And I was like, that's it. And I said to my mom, I was like, Mama, I think I'm going to become a Formula One driver. And she was like, "Mm -hmm." I'm like, yeah, yeah. I'm going to be like the first female black Muslim Formula One driver. It's going to be amazing. Like, and she was like, what? Like, just go finish the dishes. You know, like, what are you talking about? (laughs) And like, I don't know. Like, I went through a lot of phases as a kid, but for some reason it stuck. And I just, I remember I went to Sunnybank Hills Library because that was our local library. And I remember I just borrowed every single book I could find on cars. And I was like, this is it. I'm going to, I mean, obviously to actually be a driver in any motorsport kind of world is very expensive. And you also have to be very skinny and very like short. And I'm none of those things. Right. But I was like, fine, I can like make the cars. And I just became obsessed. I was like that kid, you know how like you used to put like pictures on your front cover of school books and laminate them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All of mine were different cars. I laminated every single, I had like Corvette Stingrays and Commodores and, you know, Camaros and Supras and R34s all over my books. I like dragged my parents, my dad to like, you know, there's like car shows they had at the Brisbane Exhibition Centre to like go check out the new cars. I was like, whatever I could do to like be near the cars. And then obviously as soon as I could get my licence, well, my dad actually wouldn't let me get my licence in grade 12, because he was like, it'll be too much of a distraction from your studies. And I was like, that's a lie. But of course he was right, because yeah. I just would not have done any schoolwork if I could hoon around <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sunnybank in my car. So, yeah. Oh, there's some good hooning roads in Sunnybank. I've, I have been sideways in a Mitsubishi Magna out oh. the back of that joint. 
many a night. Uh, Boom. <laughs> let me tell you. <laughs> Honestly, it's such a good vibe. It's yeah. such a good vibe. I don't know. Do people still do that? I have no idea. Now that you're closer to Europe, as a you know, obviously got access to you know more Formula One teams. I know you had an opportunity to work. Um, was it with the Mercedes team as an unpaid intern at some point? Yeah. Is that yeah, still yeah. on the radar? Is that still something you'd be interested in? Do you know? I had this opportunity to work for Mercedes, but you know, didn't have the money for it, and then ended up kind of trying to go down the journalism route. So I went to mm. a couple of races. I went to. Barcelona and Malaysia and Monaco and the British GP Silverstone and like reported for, you know, different outlets. The thing is, Osha, what I realized was like the world of F1 is actually way more about like money and the drama. And like, I just actually was like, I don't know if I want to be in this world. I don't know if like, I don't know if these are the people that I want to be like. And that was like a really hard thing. I think we've all seen that, watching that Netflix show, yeah. Oh, my God, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's it's just a billionaire's dick measuring contest, the whole thing. It's like, yeah, sure, an $11,000 Toyota Echo has, uh, you know, ABS (laughs) because that Mercedes 20-something years ago invented it, and that's nice, but come on, guys. Yeah. And I think that was a really hard thing for me to admit, right? Because yeah. like it had been the thing like I had wanted to do for a decade. I was working towards it, right? Since yeah. I was 13, all I, I was like, this is the thing that I'm going to do. And then I got to that world and I was like, oh no, I don't actually think I like this world. It was a real, like, you know, what do you do when you kind of, you get to your dream and you realize the dream isn't what you wanted it to be? Like, it, it was a real shock, I think. I hope you don't you know, give driving away. And look, if you're in the UK now, look, it's a hop, skip and a jump to the Nürburgring and you can rent whatever oh. car you want and go around the track. <laughs> Me sitting behind the wheel. Yeah, the coach sits next to you. The coach sits <laughs> next to you and you can spend five days running, yeah. doing that track. And I certainly hope you do. 72 turns. It's a shit ton. That is that is definitely like the vibe, right? Like me, yeah. I may not, never work in Formula One, but like, I mean, unfortunately, every time I've gotten behind the wheel of a car in London, I've gotten a speeding ticket and I haven't even meant to. It's because the speeding limits are just so low. It's like, literally it's 20 miles an hour. I'm like, I could walk faster than that. But, yeah. you know, it just, so I have an, a, a deep, you know, calling to driving a little too quickly somewhere deep in my, you know, <laughs> in, deep in my veins. So I'm very, you know, the fastest I've ever driven on was on the, the autobahn. And I think I hit like 320 k's an hour and it was the best moment of my life. That's not slow. Good, great. What kind of vehicle? No, <laughs> also takes a really long time yeah. to stop. It was actually just a golf. It was just like a nifty little golf. But, you know, that German engineering. Don't you underestimate. And that's the thing. When I'm in Sydney and I see people <laughs> in that exact car or the Audi and it's raining yes. and we're in a 60 zone and people are doing 40, I'm like, <laughs> your car is engineered to take corners at 200 and blizzard. <laughs> Fucking step on it, mate. Literally. Let's go, mate. There's Let's that go. much technology in the steering <laughs> to save you from rolling over. You will be fine. The car is wet because it's also crying at yeah. what you're doing right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, I love that you did that in a in a golf, and don't let the golf uh, fool you. <laughs> I do. I do want to talk a bit more about the engineering stuff. But when you were a younger woman, uh, you kind of popped up to a lot of people and went, "Wow, she's really powerful." When she speaks, she's got the fire in her eyes. Mm. She's very clever. She knows her shit. 
And then all these kind of accolades started coming your way. Mm. You know, Young Queenslander of the Year, Young Australian Muslim of the Year, all these sorts of things. Queensland Young Australian of the Year. And then to the point where you're like, okay, oh, we want you to go to other countries and do diplomacy on our behalf. Mm. And I, like, that must have mm. felt amazing, amazing to be entrusted to be, a, you know, a young Muslim woman going to these other countries talking about your country that are taking your family in. Mm. Before we get to the really bad part, could we ask can I ask you like what did, mm. what did that feel like to go to Jordan, <laughs> to go to go to these countries and, and represent Australia? Oh, it was a huge honor. And I think that like it was kind of the manifestation of everything that my parents could have wanted to give their daughter. And it was my way of showing my gratitude really mm. to a nation that had that I felt had provided me and my family a sense of safety and opportunity that unfortunately was rapidly becoming impossible to find in Sudan. Mm. I always took those opportunities very seriously. Like, you know, when I left Australia, I resigned from nine different boards and councils because I was always serving, you know, on boards. Like, I think my first board was when I was like 13 I ran Youth Without Borders for nine years. Yeah, it was wild. I was constantly reading board papers and constantly going to, you know, strategy meetings about how we could help this community or work with young people here. Or And, like, for me, I was like, I'm living a life of service. Like, mm. that is what I want to do. And, and to be honest, I think also, like, I didn't really, I always felt that the, you know, all the accolades were lovely, but also I never felt that I was doing anything it's it's funny because I think like in the culture that I'm from, like serving your community isn't something that is necessarily like a laudable thing. It's mm-hmm. just how you operate. Yeah. Like my parents were volunteering and being involved my entire life. Like I'd never seen them not be involved in the community. So it was always funny to me because I'm like, I'm just kind of doing what we do. You know, mm-hmm. I'm just like, this is the way that I practice my faith. This is the way that I engage in my community. And it's very lovely that you all want to recognize me for it, but, you know, what would be better is if we could, like, maybe implement some of the recommendations that we think would be good or whatever, as opposed to, you know, making an exception out of me. But I didn't have the language, I think, for that kind of stuff then. I had I had a sense and a feeling, but mm. I didn't quite know how to, like, translate that. And so I, I very much was like, let me use all these opportunities and show people, you know, Muslims aren't terrorists and show people we can be part of the conversation as well. So I really like took that responsibility on pretty seriously. It's kind of interesting. And, and I lead a secular life and I, I kind of, I, I miss that about that we don't mm. have that so much in day-to-day Australian culture, that those community moments and this mm. being of service to others isn't kind of baked into what it is to be mm. to one's identity in our community, I guess. Yeah. I think that humans kind of need that right and like whether you associate it with religion or another kind of construct or framework the reality is like Australia has tried to create those moments in different ways whether it's through sport Mm. whether it's through you know national days of significance rightly or wrongly part of the reason they are so imbued with importance is because we need ritual and we need moments to come around and like one of the the things I often think about is like in Islam, when, you know, the Eids, like the little Eid, which is the one that comes after Ramadan, and then big Eid, which comes about 70 days later, initially, if my memory serves me correctly, they were like pagan festivals. And then the Prophet Muhammad was like, people still need to celebrate. So let's like, let's just like repurpose them for our 
sort of religious. Oh, hang on. So he did it. Helena- can I say he? Can I say the name? I don't know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Of okay. course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's the, just the Prophet Muhammad. The Prophet Muhammad. <laughs> he kind of did a Helen of Constantine. Mm. He went, oh, look. Mm. Look, if we're all going to be here together, I know I know it's a solstice, but let's just say Christ was born on that day. There we go. <laughs> right, right, and, right. Yeah. <laughs> just right. Because that was it. the thing is the people need the celebration. They, yeah. you know, it matters. I'm always like so amused when I go to parts of the world where like a building has been a church, a mosque, a church again, maybe a synagogue. Like, you know, it's the same building. Southern yeah. Spain is full of stuff like this. Like all of yeah. these places that were mosques are now churches and vice versa. And it's like... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, ultimately, it's broadly just people needing to get together to, like, believe in something bigger than themselves, and then the rest is details and semantics. I mean, obviously, I'm being a bit cheeky, but you know what I mean? No, I, no. Oh, look, trust me, I I have stood in the middle of the old city of, of Jerusalem, and uh, I have seen, like, this is a complicated mm. scenario. Like I wouldn't even begin mm. to grapple with that. Oh, uh, I just kind of watched it all. I was like, "Boy, there's a lot going on here, guys." Um, so, look, mm-hmm. I, I guess I wanted to ask this, this: what it felt like to go back to Sudan, you know, as an adult, to go to mm. UAE, to go to Saudi Arabia, which is very different when you went. It's very different now to when you went to go to Egypt. Mm. You went after the Arab Spring, so very, you know, mm. Mubarak was gone. Complicated, so complicated, but what's happening Mm. and then to come be in our country this country that you were so proud of to be so Mm. abso-fucking-lutely publicly just vilified Mm. Uh, it it must have been just it must have broken your heart yeah i mean like that's ultimately so like one of the essays that i included in talking about a revolution was it a piece that I wrote pretty soon after I left? And it was ultimately just a piece about grief. Mm. I think people perhaps, you know, this kind of gets lost in the story and people, you know, freaking out about whatever I say. But I cannot really kind of explain how my sense of the world was so shattered Mm. and I just could not get my head around this place that I loved so much turning against me in such a way. And for me to sort of feel so isolated in that and for nobody really to be able to, at the time, say this is happening for this rational reason, you know, because it never felt rational. It never felt proportional. It never felt like I could actually do anything about it. And so I kind of had to make sense of a nonsensical experience at the age of like 25, 26. I was living away from my parents. I was in this, I just think like it completely shattered my sense of the world and broke my heart. And I said, I've said that, you know, many times. And I think people kind of take that a bit personally, but I'm like, it makes complete sense. Like, of course it would break your heart of like, it's a place that you loved, that you were willing to travel around the world and tell how, like, I told kids in Palestine how wonderful Australia was. I told my friends and family in Sudan. I went to, you know, I was did rally car driving in Jordan, and that was part of me telling the people how wonderful this country was and how and the opportunities it gave me. And then I come back and not even a year later find myself, like, experiencing the same type of, you know, emotional ostracization that, 
you know, that I couldn't even imagine in those very countries that I had just, you know, <laughs> spent time extolling Australia. Yeah. You know, it was just like, and I remember my uncle called me up and he was like, he was like, look, you know, if you want to come back to, I think he was living in the Middle East. He was like, if you want to come back, like there's always a place here for you because he was like, because this is what always happened. They will never, they will never actually accept us. So know that like, you know, you can come back to Sudan and it'll, you'll be safe here, which is oh my, wild. My God. Right. I'm just, I'm just so, so sorry that that happened mm. to you and Thank you. your mm. friends and family all who went through it. Mm. Yeah. No. And I said this once, I think in a piece, and I think it's very true. They would have kept going until I killed myself without a doubt. And then they would have danced on my grave. Like, that's the energy. Look at her trying to get more attention, true. even in death. <laughs> exactly. Like, literally. And I say that, and I know people find it shocking, but I'm like, I'm sorry. Like, we all know it's true. Like, we all know it's true. And, like, and they wouldn't have felt bad about it. And, and a lot of people would have stood by and watched. And I think, you know, I said this to someone the other day. I was like, you know, my life will never be the same, but what I what I hope is rather than people, because I think people hold a lot of guilt around what happened. I always just say, like, make sure it never happens to anyone again. Like, that's yeah. that's my challenge to you. Make sure it never happens on your watch again, because I will be here telling you that you cannot, you cannot let that happen to anyone again. That's just not, un- it's just not acceptable. And it is your responsibility, it is on your watch. Like I, not only was it that it was a pushback and this wild thing that happened from the country I love, it was the fact that all these people that I knew personally, all these people that benefited, all these people that gave me those awards, do you think any of them were out there, Osha, being like, let's not do this because she's actually a great human um, and done a lot for this country? Do you think the prime minister that I sat down next to for dinner and risked my reputation in the Muslim community to help him out, do you think he was out there being like, actually, let's not destroy this person? Do you think, you know, all those people that gave me what... Let me tell you, Asha, I had somebody to my face, a senior person in the media, ask me if I was actually a radical terrorist because they had seen a headline and they were worried that I was pretending to be moderate all along. Like, like what kind of grown person asks somebody in their <laughs> mid-20s if they're actually a radical extremist because of something they read in the papers and somebody who knows me personally, yeah. like, I'm sorry, what? Have you all taken leave of your senses? Yeah. <laughs> part of me can't help but think, and, and if you don't want to talk about this part, it's okay. You've, you've already talked enough about it. If you'd like to stop talking about it, please just say, look, can we move on? I'm fine with that. When I watch what happened to you, even if mm. a, and we had we have seen it with high-profile men uh, mm. of not white colour, say mm. similar things, if not more confronting mm. things, I'm not saying incendiary things, just confronting, I am calling this as mm. bullshit the way these, you know, refugees mm. are treated, for example. Those men still have careers. Those men are still taken seriously oh, at yeah. the things that they do mm-hmm. for money. What part of you being a woman do you think had to play in this? 
Well, actually, before I answer that, I want to ask you mm-hmm. why you think it happened the way that it did. Because I, as again, like one of the essays that I wrote was like, I kind of ended it by saying like, I actually don't know that I know how to make sense of this experience because my memory is so like, I guess like I have various theories, but I'm always curious what other people, you know, observers think because uh, there's, what is the explanation? Somebody, <laughs> what do you think? What do I think? Um, watching it all go down. I would say mm. that, and this is the horrible, 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 horrible part of this, mm. you made the people who printed all those headlines and spent mm. all those hours of network television talking about you, you made them so much fucking money because you are the mm. perfect person to point at because you're fucking clever, you're beautiful, you're powerful, you're not afraid, you will talk back. If someone says some crazy mm. bullshit of like, you're just here because you want Sharia law to take over the country and like, mm. do you even, do you even mm. know what Sharia means? No, you don't. <laughs> you're believing a fucking meme right now. Like yep. they made so much money off of you. I'm talking, I'm fucking millions and millions in advertising revenue. And- really? That's oh, wild. Mate. I've never actually thought about that. Of course they fucking did. I mean, I kind of knew that it was did like. Did have my fucking newspapers they would have <laughs> sold with you on the cover? Oh, God. I'm like the opposite of Princess Diana. Like, do you know when they always, they always say they put Princess Diana on and people will buy it? I'm like the the other side of the coin. <laughs> people will hate buy the paper. Yes. Because they want to feel, like I said before, they want to feel that they're a part of something. All right. Mm. And I don't feel connected to these people, but I know I'm not that. And they're telling me that that yeah. is bad and I'm happy to go, well, that is bad because this person, I don't know, says that's bad too. And oh, good, now it's me and him together thinking that's bad, good. And I'm, I, mm. unfortunately, I think that's pretty much all it is. I don't think it is yeah. you are not allowed to call us on a treatment of refugees. I do think a big part of it, mm. though, is as well this kind of unspoken, you're an immigrant, you should be grateful, shut the fuck up. Yeah. I think there's, I think yeah, there yeah, was yeah. that also is at play, but I think by far and above, when you look at the amount of coverage that happened. Mm. You made them. They don't put stuff on air that they don't print shit that doesn't make money. Damn, man. And that made them so much money. I wish I saw some of that money. And it's awful <laughs> that it destroyed your fucking life. It destroyed, yeah. yeah. It destroyed your life and career uh, in this country. Your career is now, you know, your life and career is amazing in the UK, but it destroyed your life and career mm. in, in, in this country for, for cash, for shareholders. Yeah. And it's awful. I can believe that. Mm. It's awful. But these are also the same people who've spent 20 years saying, climate change, you fucking greeny, lefty. (laughs) Because they know it sells papers. It sells hours on late night cable, you know, Mm. bloviating white guy talking head show, which I won't Mm. mention. But it's the same people. (laughs) It's the same. It just makes Mm. money. They're just contrary to make cash. It doesn't make anything to do with sense at all. And I'm really sorry, even more sorry that it's that. In my opinion, mm. I'm sorry. I'm so fucking sorry. Oh, thank you. I like, I appreciate that. And I think one of the things that well, you kind of point to, which sometimes I, f- I feel people don't quite get their head around is like, you know, and you referenced this before, there was actually nothing I could do to make it stop. No. Like, because it was about who I was right? Like I actually didn't have the power to make it stop. And that's the thing. Cause I often, I get people being like, oh, you could have done this or you should have done that or blah, 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 blah. I'm like, 
you give me way too much agency, way too much power in this situation. I could not make it stop. And like, I paid so much money from my savings to like talk to like crisis communicators or whatever in that time to be like, please, somebody tell me what to do. Cause I am a child. I am young. I have no idea what's happening. I'm an engineer. This is not what my parents taught me how to do. Please someone help. And nobody really knew how to do anything about it. Like the advice, the very expensive advice was just stay quiet because you know, there's nothing you can do and it will all go away. And I was like, guys, it's been six months. It's not going away. Um, no. Please help. <laughs> oh, man. So a lot of that stuff that was going on was people being terrifyingly reactionary about what they thought aspects of Islam was. And it, it's always struck mm. me that we in our country, I can only really speak for Australia, America a little bit, we have no problem conceptualising the different interpretations of Christianity, uh, Protestant, Catholic, mm. you know, Seventh-day Adventist, Jehovah's Witness, mm. whatever. We have no problem understanding that. Some of those aspects of Christianity, some of those, you know, subsets of subsets mm. uh, have committed despicable fucking violence in the name of that group idea that they all hold. Mm. But that doesn't represent, you know, your Aunt Mabel mm. who bakes a cake for the mm. Easter bake sale at her local church, does it? Mm. But they both have the same deity. We have no problem mm. in Australian mm. culture understanding that, that difference, that, you know, people setting off, you know, I mean, it was more colonialism and occupation, but people setting off bombs in Northern Ireland along religious lines, people, yeah, okay, I understand that, but mm. you're all this. Mm. I'm just kind of getting ready to talk to you today. I was, I was you know, it's like, that's, that's kind of interesting that we won't, we won't see that. It's, it's got to be, mm. everything's got to be one thing. Yeah. In a way, it's not that complicated. In a way, what it is is like seeing another group as the other and kind of not giving that group of people the sort of dignity of being humans, right? Mm. It's like ultimately it's a dehumanizing process. Yep. It's the same process that gets mostly black people shot by the police in the United States for it disproportionately. It's the same kind of othering that leads to all sorts of genocide and conflict around the world. It's that same process of dehumanization. I think part of the, the challenge and the difference is small groups of people actively benefit from that dehumanization. They use that dehumanizing process to stay in power, to make themselves money. You know, it's not just a benign dehumanization. It is actively done so. And people are conscious of what they're doing. Like I think whether whether or not you think so-and-so actually hates this group or not is kind of beside the point because they're using their positions of power to ferment a type of hatred and dehuman. I mean, ultimately, like the, the Rwandan genocide, people may or may not know that for months and for a long time before the actual genocide, people were on radio dehumanizing you know, parts of the population and yeah. saying these people are like animals, they're yeah. like this, they're like this, they're insects, whatever. So by the time they went out and said, go out there and murder your neighbours, people were like, oh, yeah, sure, no worries, yeah. because they were already dehumanised to the point that people didn't see them as fellow human beings. And yeah. ultimately, I think that's what happens at a, you know, national and international scale. And you can use whatever reasoning behind that, but... Ultimately, that's the mechanism that's happening. 
And unfortunately, it, it's the it's the technique power structures use to get mm-hmm. past stuff that is really, really uncomfortable, like putting mm-hmm. people who are fleeing horrific war on Manus and Nauru and things like this. Ah, they're mm-hmm. illegal. They're both Even the people. First Nations people, like the kinds of yeah. Oh my god, yes. Absolutely. They're not, it's not a human. It's not. Northern Territory intervention. No. Oh, my like all God. Of, yeah. Yeah. You know. It's exactly that. It's it's not a mum and a dad who love their children. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's thousands of people who are exactly the same and they're all this and it's said in eight seconds and that's the truth now. But that's not real. Yeah. And, and I think that's the only thing we can no. kind of really talk about here is like just be aware of that. And when you start hearing people talking of mm. like taking the action of one or a small group and applying it to an entire suburb, an entire city, an entire suburb in Mm. Melbourne at the moment, Jesus, uh, an entire city, an entire Mm. state, an entire portion of our community, then that's that's alarm bells, man, because it's not. It's never that. I always say to people, like, when you find yourself, like, thinking quickly or, like, thinking you have the automatic answer to something about someone or a group of people or anything, like, if you think when somebody asks you, you know, Osha, if somebody asks you about, your partner or your kid, it takes you some time to answer because that person is complicated Mm. and complex and they're a full human. And so you don't give like an easy pat answer, an immediate half millisecond answer because you actually have to think about it. But when we have immediate answers to, oh, what's that person like? Or what's that group of people like? The first thought, that's actually, that is like 100% the bias, the shortcut our brains make. And so like the moment we start to notice that we have a pat shortcut answer to a whole group of people or to a whole whatever, the question I, where did you get that information from? What is that opinion based on? You know, if you actually don't know, or if it's like vague, or if it's not actually something, I mean, I always say to people, the opinion you have of Muslims, where does that come from? Does it come from research you yourself have done on like, you know, what actual Muslims do and don't think and spend their time doing? And have you gone and and researched what the Quran says like in a deep way and not just what it says on Reddit? Or is it like, oh, I've done a bit of social media Googling and I listened to the news and I, you know, my uncle once said this thing and therefore I now am fully informed on the whole 1400 years of Islamic theology and what Muslims are like, you know, of course not. And so I like, that's the challenge. It's like, where are you actually getting your information from? And I mean, again, in a time of loads of disinformation and misinformation, a little bit more challenging, but just slow your thinking down and ask, am I really sure about this? How do I double check? And how do I make sure that I'm just not parroting, you know, a dehumanizing perspective, but I'm actually giving people the kind of respect that I myself would want to be treated with? I certainly wouldn't want people to decide how they do or don't treat me based on a couple of grainy reposted memes, but that seems to be yeah. what happens. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. I just am constantly amused at, like, how wild the perception of, of me is sometimes. I'm, somebody actually was like, oh, like, you're actually, you have, like, a sense of humour. You're, like, really funny. Like, I just I just expected you to be, like, so much more serious. Like, you come across this really hard line. I'm like, okay. Um, <laughs> Do you know sure. what hard line is? <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> have you? I'm sorry, but, like. Have you seen photos of Tehran <laughs> from 77 to 80? Like, have you seen? <laughs> Like, do you? Yeah, 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 yeah. My. If you think I'm hardline, like, just oh wait. Oh, my God. Yeah. 
Oh man. I remember I occasionally try to make jokes on Twitter, which is, you know, always a risky business. And people quite often respond to my jokes with full mm. seriousness. They'll be like, mm, I'm sorry, but have you ever actually thought of this particular thing? I'm like, guys, <laughs> let me make a joke, goddammit. Like, I, I'm just trying to make a dad oh, joke, man. okay? Like, allow it. <laughs> Just taking a quick moment to have a break from that conversation with Yasmin to uh, say that if you enjoy the show and you want to support the show, the best way you can help the show, if this show brings you any value at all, the best way you can help this show is to share it, let other people know about it, text it to somebody, share it on the profile page, hit send in the corner of your podcast app and let somebody know. The other thing you can do is to like, to subscribe, to rate. It all helps. It really, really helps us because people come and go all the time when they subscribe, they unsubscribe all the time. So it really, really helps. If you'd like to help us in a more, you know, kind of fiscal way, there's ad-free episodes on Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash Osher. There's also full video episodes. We're, we're trying our best to get more of them down the pipe. We're having a few tech issues with that. But there's full video episodes on, on Patreon that are coming through. But the previously mentioned 5G dongles uh, have been a part of, of, of that being a bit of a challenge. Also, while, uh, while I've got you, if you could do check out Dad Pod, Charlie Clawson and I, we um, Dad Pod this year's this season is really really good, and I'm I'm, I'm stoked about it. We're, we're thrilled to be bringing it, bringing you a new version of the show. So you can find Dad Pod wherever you find your podcast. We're going to play some ads uh, so I can pay the team, and we'll be back with more of Yasmin in a moment. Hold up! What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Part of the part of the book that I that I adored. I mean, I I talked to a lot of people on this show. I've been running this show for about nine years now, and a lot of that uh, is because I I wanted to have a couple of kinds of conversations that I felt were really missing in our public dialogue. One of them was about mental health mm. and you know just authentic conversations about what it means to you know, be living with a diagnosis mm. and you know what it looks like to look after your mental health. The other one was like that I just wasn't hearing mm. the conversations about climate. That I was like, guys, we really we got to fucking mm. talk about this, and like now we need to talk about this. Yeah. So like, I remember like in 2013, 2014, I was having conversations with people, and I'd be getting emails going, "What are you talking about?" I'm like, "Do you not un- like it's 27 degrees and it's the 26th mm. of June in Sydney? Like that's not good. Mm. You know, <laughs> we've got it. Yeah. Like, we need to we need to do something. So part of your because I think a lot about how much our country of Australia has just hitched its wagon to coal and and gas and we're really mm. seeing those chickens coming home to roost at the moment. My God, it's going to be mm. a bumpy couple of months out here. But mm. I, I found it just fascinating reading your accounts of life on and off mining camps. I thought it was just incredible mm. the kind of 
people that you were meeting oh, yeah? and the what the work was like mm. and what the job was like. Like, well, I guess I'll ask you coming from, you know, where I come from, when you think about, and I love that they call it the pay zone, you know, when you're, you're, you're looking after the, <laughs> you're the engineer, you're the only woman on site in this remote camp that's a squillion miles from anywhere, so I can only imagine how you felt as far as safety is concerned, mm. but you're standing above the pay zone, which is like we're just going to drill here until we find the thing that we're mm. going to sell overseas. When you look around at those men, they're all men, do you mm. see guys who are prepared for like how incredibly quickly we are going to transition away from fossil fuels? I'm not saying fossil fuels will stop tomorrow, but mm. it's going to happen so damn fast. Mm. Like are these guys kind of prepared? Like what do, you, what do you see? What do you think? I think that part of what I find really sad is that they could be if they were prepared and led mm. properly. You know, I think that sometimes we infantilize, you know, this particular group of people, this part of the population. And like, you know, I was one of these people. And like my job got automated out. Like when I first started working, the job that I had, I was a measurement while drilling specialist, four people per rig. By the time I moved away from that job two years later, it was one MWD per like three or four rigs because it had started becoming automated. Like already my job was being automated out. Already the future in this industry wasn't looking like something that was very assured, right? So so like there was already a sense that like the work wasn't staying the same as it was before and so on. But something that I always thought was like, it's not like we particularly loved you know, oil and gas and coal. It wasn't like we had a love affair with these yeah. minerals. What it was was stable work, was enough money quite often for, for people to be able to like support families or whatever or whatever. It was work that felt meaningful. It was also you could come in with no education. You could come in straight out of prison. You could come in whatever and you would get trained and you would work your way up and that was structured and systematic and like it gave you a sense of responsibility and whatever. And like, a lot of guys couldn't handle it, but the guys that did found something there. And it was also a world where, like, you could be super weird and still, as long as you could do your job, the guys would accept you. And then there was this kind of weird family. I mean, I wouldn't say family, but there was there was some sort of solidarity mm. there, right? So there, there were all these things that I think people found really compelling. That can exist in other places if individuals, politicians, whatever, said, hey, we know that it's going to be hard for you to transition we're going to support that transition for you. Because right now, some of those guys that I knew, many of them have left the industry. One of them has gone back to deforesting, like to cutting down wood because he can't find any other work. He hates it. He hates logging. It's a dangerous job. But he's like, I don't really have any other option. I'm 55. I don't know what else to do. There is no support for me to transition. These skills that I had been training, you know, that I've worked for 35 years on, I can't necessarily just transfer them. And I think with the right support, mm. he could transfer them. And he's a lovely person, but like doesn't see the path to, to be able to like go into an industry that is, you know, cleaner and more sustainable and all these other things. A couple of the guys have gone into quite often they go back to construction or whatever. But like I often like I try to remind people, because you know, I had friends that had sort of hard conversations with me. I'm like, do you know, growing up in Queensland, if you did mechanical engineering in the 2000s and the 2010s, 
those were your options. It's not like they were like loads of jobs building solar panels or whatever that I said no to, right? Like this was what was available. Mm. And if there were alternative options at the time, you know, that seemed viable, like genuinely. And, you know, these big fossil fuel companies were like doing all they could to attract us into this world, right? They would like not wine and die, but they would like, they have these big pay packages and yeah. the and they would tell you about the kind of life you're gonna all this sort of stuff it's a bit of a sidebar but I guess like I don't know if the people are ready but I don't always blame them because I think that they are operating within a context yeah. where they are trying to do the best they can what I do think I'll just finish up saying this I think it has been turned into an ideological thing over the last five to seven yeah. years and that's actually the hardest part because when I was working 10 years ago, I think it would have been easier. Now it's become a bloody identity. And that is a problem. It has been turned into this thing that it actually isn't. As an engineer, the, the must, and we talked about it with your father before, it must affect the way you think about mm. stuff, you know, the, the world, oh, yeah. you, you know, how mm. you solve problems, things like that. And what I really did love, and I'm grateful you put it in the book, and that the word the word empower is your father's favourite word. And you write this extraordinary passage mm. and we can't we can't empower our way out of climate change. We can't empower mm. our way out of, uh, I'm paraphrasing it, but like institutional, you know, degradation of, mm. of, of parts of our community. Mm. We can't just, you know, patriarchy, you know, heterosexism or, or such and such. Mm. At some point there has to be leadership. There has to be people who will go, actually, mm. no, here's some policy. Because we feel that in order yeah. for all of us to get from here to there, this is just how we're going to all have to do it and let's go. And, yep. you know, certainly when it comes to energy, sitting there above the pay zone, <laughs> you know, I'm so sad that it's been lacking so much in this country. But as an, as an engineer, as someone who sees the numbers and sees the Neo in the Matrix numbers, when you see how our energy transition is, is going, when you see the possibilities that our country of Australia mm. has in front of us, what do you see? Oh, I've always said that if Australia wanted, it could pretty rapidly become a fully renewable, domestically renewably powered nation. Like, I think that is very, very much within its reach. I think the the challenge, like from an engineer's perspective, I graduated university in 2011. When I graduated, you know, we were still kind of having conversations about like the efficiency of solar panels, this, that, and the other. That was kind of where the conversation was at. Pretty rapidly after that, though, I remember the next five years after I graduated, the technology went through like exponential change and improvement. And so like the conversation wasn't the same anymore. Like if you graduated five years after I graduated in, you know, the year that my little brother graduated from Mechange, for example, it's just a completely different conversation. So it isn't actually about technology's limitations at all. And, you know, lots of climate folks will tell you that. What it is, is about political will. It's about decisions being made. It's about people with power who are invested in and find it, frankly, easier to make money out of carbon-heavy industries than to create the infrastructure for a new way of operating. Mm. It's been really interesting living in Europe, for example, because, you know, in London, you know, there are all these policies around, like, electric cars being... I think you kind of only will have electric cars over the next... I actually don't quote me on any of this, but, like... But programmed to phasing out, yeah. Right. And like, you know, similarly in Paris, they're making the centre of town like 
I think pedestrian and cyclist, like people will complain, but people always complain. When have people not complained about change? Like, I'm sorry, you just kind of at some point have to make the call and you have to put and say like, this is the line. I I genuinely, even as someone, and this is like an unpopular and perhaps like, I will always cop shit for this, but I'm like, listen, as a mechanical engineer, I like things that are like big wild amazing machinery and you know like for me solar panels have never been that exciting and like I loved working with gears and grease and all of this dirty stuff and I recognize you know that's just not the world anymore like uh, one of the passages I wrote in one of the essays is like I'm like a builder that loves asbestos it's like you just at some point have to be like maybe I should change industries because this is not good for anyone right like I admit that (laughs) that like you know, the things that I love and got a lot of joy out of are not good for the world. And that's fine. You can say that I love this stuff, but also it's not good and we have to stop it. Like you don't actually have to hold on to everything just because, you know, you live in a particular era. Does that make sense? It does. And look, if you still have the rally helmet that you drove around Jordan and next time you're in in Australia, (laughs) bring it and I'll take you for a fang on my electric Harley and all that shit will vanish out of your brain. (laughs) You have an electric Harley. And it's the fucking zero emissions. I I know that they're fast and fun. I just like, I'm just old school. Like I think I've just accepted that I'm old school. (laughs) All of those ideas, all of those ideas will, will leave your mind somewhere in the first 1.75 seconds are you twisting the throttle because ah. you will be <laughs> you will be about 300 meters from where you were a second and a half ago because you can go 0 to 100 in less than 2 seconds and it is unfucking believably well, fun challenge accepted challenge <laughs> accepted we'll see so how we go huh? <laughs> i get 116 newton meters of torque at 0 rpm so you know i don't doubt it but does it sound fun I, the only thing you hear, the There's only thing you hear is the only thing you hear is the sound of me swearing and laughing. That's all you hear. <laughs> no, it sounds like a space fight. It sounds like a big industrial electric. It's like, whoop, is what it sounds like. It's like a really like oh, high powered wow, winch so or something. Funny. It's the it's got fifteen and a half kilowatt hours between my legs. It's unfucking believable. It's the greatest. That's wild. However, but you know, I just kind of did want to kind of get your perspective on this. Like, no as someone from the fo- who's formerly worked in the fossil fuel industry, and and certainly someone who looks mm. at the world in this way, like there is this idea that even though here we are in twenty twenty two, the way the mm. fossil fuel industry is structured is pretty much. East India Company, 1600s. It's colonialism. Mm. It's let's mm. go to another country. Mm. Let's kind of not mm. give two hoots about who's living in this particular spot, exploit whatever's mm. going on out of there and give them fuck all, mm. if any. And that's the business model mm. for the last couple mm. of hundred years around this stuff. And, yeah. you know, I just wondered if that, that idea kind of resonates with you and, like, what you think mm. Mm, like once that chain is disrupted, like, whoa, what's going to happen? <laughs> Yeah, I don't know, you know, I think it's a really fair comparison to make. I think that what's interesting is, you know, we left one kind of state colonial model to, you know, a corporate one. Mm. And I don't really think that we have the safeguards or the regulatory bodies in place to necessarily prevent that from happening again, right? Like if you kind of look at the way the big tech companies operate, you know, their structures are similar in that they run out of one country, uh, they do whatever the fuck they want, 
around the world. They can be accessories to genocide, but never really have to deal with the consequences. And so, like, I actually think you're right to point out that similarity and that kind of structure. I think something for us to think about as, you know, people of the world who want things to be better, how do we prevent that in the future? Because what we're seeing is these are patterns of domination that have you know, in various forms have existed for centuries, there will always be people who want to dominate and who want to profit from the oppression of others. How do we prevent that from happening? Whether it's in energy, and energy I think is like a really key example because, you know, the the battle over resources has always been, you know, fundamental to, to power, mm. to sort of global or state level power. So energy is like a really interesting one and is fundamental to any society or to any sort of society that wants to progress and be civilized and so on. So yeah, I, I, I completely agree with you. And I think it's like a thing that we don't kind of talk about at that structural level enough. Like what's to stop the same thing from happening in other contexts? Uh, people who have read your book coming to power. How about that? That's what's to stop other people mm. <laughs> happening again. Um, <laughs> yes. There's so much I've got to talk to you about. <laughs> I could have done an hour and a half with you on how blockchain technology might disrupt, you know, the states uh, that we know, how we know them. And I, I could have talked to you forever about uh, what bench pressing can do for your day. But I know we've been, I was looking through uh, the Twitter DMs the other day mm. I had work and I, I couldn't make a, a chat. And I, uh, we've been talking back and forth for a number of years now. And I, Yasmin, I couldn't mm. be more grateful that you've spent this amount of time with me. And I'm so grateful oh, that you took the time you. to not only write this book, but talk to me uh, about this. And I really, really, really hope people pick up the book. It's called Talking About a Revolution and read what it is you have to say because mm. it ain't what you think. And it's a really important perspective that I feel that is, is very important to be putting out there in the world at the moment. So, look, thanks for writing it and thanks for taking the time. You're awesome. Thank you so much, Osha. And thanks for also your patience over the oh. years getting me on the podcast. So I really appreciate it. <laughs> that was Yasmin Abdul-Majid. She's got a brand new book out. It's called Talking About a Revolution. And it's... I think it's just a brilliant view of our country, a, a timestamp even in our nation's history through the lens of of someone who achieved every metric achievable of, you know, success in what's supposed to be a meritocracy, yet it very clearly isn't because even with all of that, that's how she got treated. She's brilliant to follow online. You can find her on uh, Twitter and Instagram, Yasmin A, that's Y-A-S-S-M-I-N underscore A. And on TikTok, which is also quite a lot of fun, Y-A-S-S-M-I-N underscore A-M is where you can find her. Uh, Drop her a comment. Let her know you heard her on the show. I'd love it if you could do that, just to let her know that it was worth her time. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Um, This was a really important show for me. It was a really important conversation for me to have, and I'm, I'm really grateful that I finally got a chance to share it with you. Big thanks to everybody that helped me make this show today. Thank you very much to Bruce Steele on research and support, Andy Ma, who cut the episode, Mike Mills, Toe Hider, who made all the music, and Rachel Barrett, the executive producer of everything. Uh, this week, executive producing also includes, but is not limited to organising uh, travel, internet, and um, a lot of excess baggage for way too many flights uh, in a week. But that's okay. I'm very grateful to have all of that. You're awesome. Thanks for listening. 
if you need me through the week, send us your email at gmail.com. Find us on Instagram. Shoot us a photo of where you heard this show. I always love to see it. And I'll talk to you Wednesday. Until then, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.